Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and usually I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. But today's guest, Julia Angwin, has a slightly different story to tell. Her book is called Dragnet Nation, and it's an examination of the ways in which the data that we build up in our lives is collected by other people. And the reason that she is a Life Stories guest is that a core of the book is that she endeavored to make as much of her personal information as private as possible. And we're going to talk to her about how she did that and how successful she was at it. So, Julia, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. You have been writing about privacy issues and electronic privacy issues in particular for quite a long time now, right? Yes, I started investigating privacy issues four years ago and have been working on this topic for several years. And as I was investigating more and more ways that we were being tracked here and there and all the different technology out there, I started to think that I wanted to figure out, was there a way to control, to stop all this surveillance? So the book, Dragnet Nation, is really an exploration of my attempts to control the data and see whether I was successful or not at that. What's the first thing that you were advised to do when you decided, okay, I'm going to do this? Let's let's how how do you go about it? Well, it's not easy. I mean, I was actually hoping there would be somebody who gave me a roadmap of how you go about trying to have privacy in a world of ubiquitous surveillance. And in fact, I found that there was just a lot of conflicting advice out there. So some people said it's just not possible. Some people said I had to have separate computers for every different task, one for banking, one for email, one for documents. Other people talked about how you can't ever use a phone. So in the end, I ended up having to kind of create my own path and figure out what were the things I wanted to do. And so I decided that I wasn't going to try to stop all surveillance because that is impossible. I simply wanted to limit what I call dragnets, which are basically indiscriminate surveillance, not based on me personally. So I'm not trying to prevent the police from catching me if I'm a criminal, but I want to prevent them from sweeping me up just because they can sweep up everybody's data. So I'm okay with companies that I shop with. If I want to establish a relationship with them, then they have some data about me. But we're in a world now where all sorts of companies you don't have relationships with may be tracking you. And so I wanted to limit that. So my goal essentially was to limit tracking for which there was no purpose. I wasn't a suspect, I wasn't a customer, and see if I could corral that. There was a great phrase that you used in the book that you weren't necessarily trying to stop the surveillance, just make it hard for them. Yes, and one of my goals was I just want them to have to work at it a little bit, right? In the old days, you know, everybody had to work at it. If the police wanted to follow you, they had to drive around after you in a car, you know, or if a company wanted to reach you, at least they had to pay for postage to send you something in the mail. So I essentially wanted to return to that level. When you talk about having to work for it, it's like one of the opening chapters is, as by way of comparison, you went out to East Germany and visited the Stasi archives, the, the East German secret police. And one of the things that is kind of astonishing there is the amount of work it took to get even the barest information about people under the East German regime. Yes, it was really eye-opening. When I, I, I it took me a long time to get the files. I had to submit a Freedom of Information Act request, then six months later I got them, and then I had to get them translated by Stasi experts because they used jargon. But in the end, what I saw was that they really had three main techniques, which was steaming open people's mail, listening to people's phone calls, and convincing people to become informants. And all of those things were incredibly manual labor intensive. And so essentially they had files on only one quarter of the population, and that was 
considered the most pervasive surveillance regime we've seen so far. Now, of course, our current surveillance is a little bit more benign in the sense that we're not being thrown in jail currently for <laughs> dissent, but they do have files on every one of us. I love the part where you show the Stasi archivists your Facebook account or your Facebook profile, for example. Yeah, I showed him my LinkedIn, and I showed him a visualization of my LinkedIn account, which drew this little map with all these different colors of all the different people that I was linked into, and it had sorted them into geography and also companies. So, And it was a beautiful map of more than 200 connections, and he said Stasi would have loved this. Yeah, I mean, this idea that we, you know, that we voluntarily go online and tell everybody where we work and where we're going and when we get there. <laughs> right. And by the way, we get benefits from that. We wouldn't do it if we wouldn't get a benefit. And I actually had a lot of qualms about quitting my LinkedIn account because I felt very concerned that I might never get another job, right? I mean, this is actually sort of an entryway into the job market these days. And so it's not unreasonable or irrational for people to use these services. They get benefits from them. What I am questioning is, what price are we really paying for those benefits? They seem like they're free services, but when you see how much data is being shared and aggregated about you, you realize you're paying in a different way. I would imagine Gmail is another thing that's really hard to give up because it's so easy. But you know, if you are concerned about your privacy, look, they archive everything. Gmail actually not only do they archive everything, but they actually have you know this automated system of reading your emails, right? So you get those ads that are related to the content of your email. So if you mention an email that you're like going to go buy shoes later, you may well see an ad for shoes. So they are actually admitting <laughs> we read your emails, not we people, but we the computer. So that's definitely privacy invading. However, what I found is it was very hard to find another email service. I would pay for a privacy protecting email service like Gmail. I would even pay for it from Google, but they don't offer it to me. And um, so I ended up with this sort of email from a, a collective in Seattle called Rise Up, but it is a very small service. It's not for everyone. And it has a very minuscule quota. So in fact, I have to constantly delete my emails. It's the opposite. I mean, that's the problem with privacy is you also have to delete your data. <laughs> you talk about when you were first starting out to figure out how to go about this project, constructing what's called in the parlance, uh, a threat model. Yes. And and how does that work? So a threat model in layperson's terms is basically what are you worried about, right? So for my kids, what they're worried about is me, their parent, right? They don't want me to know what they're doing. And they maybe like there's certain friends of theirs they also don't know and then other friends they want to know. But for a lot of people... You know, some people are worried about they don't want Google to know what they're doing. Other people are worried about what they don't want the NSA to know what they're doing. And, and so building your threat model is basically a way of being clear about what are you worried about because you can't protect against all threats. I mean, if you wanted to be private from your parents, from Google, from the NSA, etc., you would have to live in a tin box in the woods. And so essentially I decided that I would try to mitigate this indiscriminate tracking, and that was my threat model. And then I tried to figure out ways to limit that, and that whether it was software or whether it was changing my own behavior. And you mentioned the NSA just now, and having covered privacy issues for four years, you must have been on top of stuff that was going on in the NSA. So that when the Snowden thing breaks last year, on the one hand, it's like, okay, now that, great, there's all this, this stuff that I have to write about. But at the same time, I'm assuming, you know, in terms of the timeline of the book, you're like, oh my God, I got to incorporate this into the book now. 
<laughs> right. Well, you know, it, it was interesting because when Snowden came out, more than anything, it was really reassuring to me because all the things that he proved, the Verizon phone database, the prison program, were things that were basically known but not known, if that makes sense. So people who follow these issues, there had been enough hints and leaks and tips that these were going on that we all believed it was going on, but we felt like we were completely paranoid and crazy. And so when he came out with this, I thought, oh, thank God I'm not crazy, right? This is actually happening. And so it was really helpful to me for the book because I'd already chosen my topic of Dragnet Nation, but boy, did he reveal a lot more Dragnets that we didn't know about before. You talk about not just the, the Dragnet as it affects you, but you also check in with other people. For example, you write about one case where this guy's friend makes a comment on Reddit and suddenly he's under FBI surveillance. Yeah, this was a the story of a, a two friends, teenage guys in California, both Egyptian and but American citizens. And one of them made he made a silly comment on Reddit where people were talking about how absurd the TSA policies were. And so he made a joke that to the effect of, you know, they're doing all the screening at TSA, but it would be perfectly easy to bomb them all, right? You just walk in with a duffel bag and with a bomb in it and there's no TSA there. So then what happened is his best friend took his car to get an oil change It went up on the lift and he looked underneath and saw that there was something hanging off the bottom and it turns out it was a GPS tracking device installed by the FBI. And so what these guys learned was that you can't really make a joke on Reddit. I mean, you're going to end up on this sort of watch list. And so this guy, Yasser, who found it, has really changed his life since that happened. He no longer hangs out with that friend. He would never, he never makes any jokes about security. He gets extra screening at the airports all the time. And he, he lives a very different life. And he is, um, he's scared. He's scared of being placed under more surveillance. And the thing is, is that it's like, you know, he makes a joke, but on the same token, it's not a joke that, you know, I mean, for example, like the, the incident in Short Hills, New Jersey at the mall there last year taught us that it is actually very easy to go in and create it. I mean, this guy you know, shot it up rather than right. using a bomb, but it's it's actually frighteningly easy to do those sorts of things if you are determined enough to do them. Right. And I think the question that's really raised by the question about uh, about this posting and this, the reason I spend so much time on the story of Yasser in my book is that it really raises the question about freedom of speech, Right. As you said, it's actually accurate to say that you could bomb a mall. And in fact, people have gone and done bad things in malls. And so do we want a world where you can't say things like that and that lands you under suspicion? That starts to affect what I consider our First Amendment rights and things that we consider really sacred in this country. As you were going through your heightened security process, what were some of the, the things that you began to notice immediately about how your life was being rearranged or how you were rearranging your life. The biggest thing I realized was that it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't like, okay, I figured out the answer to figure out how to do better Gmail and, or better email service and now I'm going to now that problem is solved. It's never solved. So what I realized is that it's really a way of approaching your life. It's sort of like becoming a vegetarian. Every single day you have to choose not to eat meat. So every single day I have to choose how to live my life in a way that limits surveillance. And so there's no easy answer. It, you know, for instance, the cell phone I have a burner phone, which is basically a phone that's prepaid but not tied to my name. But I have to choose every day. Do I carry that one 
Or do I carry my real phone? Because my, my regular phone is the one that my kids know how to reach me on. And and so it's all the time a trade-off. Well, if I'm going to meet someone sensitive, I'll bring the burner. And if I would, you know, uh, and then I have a bag I can put my phone in, which blocks all signals so that the, my location can't be tracked. So then it's a question during the day. Well, what points during the day do I want to stick my phone in the bag? And which time do I want to be out and reachable? And so it, it is like an endless process of decision-making. And you mentioned wanting to have the regular phone for your kids and that, raises the point that, you know, you're not making this decision alone, that, you know, your husband and your kids are, you know, for lack of a better term, they're, they're sort of like security holes. In your <laughs> yes, right. And that is actually one thing that became apparent to me at Christmas. During the course of this book, I tried to remove my name from all the like online searches for people's names and addresses. Those data brokers that you see, you can look up somebody's name, whatever. Of the 220 that I identified, I was only able to opt out of, I think, less than half of them because they don't actually offer them. But I felt like I'd been pretty successful at removing my name and address from the internet. But no, at Christmas time, I got a Christmas card and on the outside of it, it was from somebody who I didn't know knew my home address. This person wrote, ha, I found your address online. (laughs) And so this was the perfect capper to my year, which was like, I was totally unsuccessful. So a determined person could still find my address online. Now that the book is out, are you still living this way or or was this something that's like okay let's let's conduct this experiment and then it has an that does it have an endpoint you know i still do i still am living this way because it's become a habit i mean exactly like become a vegetarian i basically feel like i have just learned to be much more mindful and careful about what technology i use how i use technology how i share data and I basically realized that it's not a it's, a, it's a practice, it's a way of life. And I think it's also going to be a skill that more and more of us are going to have to learn because we all live in this world. And it's not just the NSA we're worried about. Our data is being hacked by criminals. And so we all basically need to learn a little bit more of the skills that I learned. Maybe not everyone's going to go as far as me, but I think we're all going to end up having to work harder at this. For example, just within the last week as we're recording this, Kickstarter got hacked. Right. The hacks in the past month, Kickstarter, Target, Neiman Marcus, I mean, what hasn't been hacked at this point, right? I did spend like a significant portion of time building better passwords, and I continue to work on the password issue. Passwords alone could be a lifetime practice. You mentioned when we talked about starting out on this project that one of the difficulties was there is so much conflicting advice out there, and there isn't really a good roadmap. Now that you've been through this, if someone else wanted to adopt this lifestyle, what would be you know, maybe just like one or, or, or two starting principles that you could give to them to, to, to make it a little easier for them than it was for you? Well, one, I think that the two of the easiest and most productive things that I did and the ones that I counsel other people to do are build better passwords and block online ad tracking because that those are two things that are pretty achievable and they have huge effects right away. So all of a sudden when I'm browsing the web, I feel so much more secure because I have blocked all the 
dozens of trackers and cookies that are dropped on my machine on it by every website. And I've also blocked any like a lot of the intrusions that happen. Hacking can happen through unencrypted transmissions, and I've encrypted all my internet traffic. And those really were actually super easy to do. I installed some plugins into my browser, and I've actually got instructions for how to do that on my website, juliaengwin.com, <laughs> under privacy tools. Um, the other thing I did was I built better passwords. And if you were going to build one better password, make it for your email account, because that's the account that can be used to reset all your other accounts. You know, when you go in and you're like, forgot password, send me an email. So please just, if you know one thing about passwords, make them long. 30 characters would be awesome. And even better, make them a string of random words you've picked out of the dictionary, plus a few numbers if you'd like. But long is the most important thing. As you were writing Dragnet Nation and writing about privacy issues on an ongoing basis as a journalist, how did your coworkers treat you? Were they coming to you for advice where they sort of going, aha, Julie has gone paranoid or, or you know, how, yeah. how? No, I mean, when I switched, when I stopped using Google search and started using DuckDuckGo, my colleagues really made fun of me because, you know, it's like, it's this search engine no one's heard of. It has a picture of a little duck with a bow tie. It, it looks a little silly. And I started doing all my searches on it. I think it's been almost two years now that I've been doing that. And, and people made fun of me. And they still do, but it's become like a badge of honor. And I, I sort of take pride in it now that I want to be the most paranoid person in the newsroom, and I usually succeed at that. And to clarify for our listeners, the, one of the advantages of DuckDuckGo is that unlike Google, they don't keep your search history. Yeah, they don't keep anything. So they don't know where I am. They don't, you know, one thing you don't realize when you use Google search is that the reason it's so convenient and fast is because they already know many more things about you than what you type in the search bar. So you type in restaurant, but they already know where you're sitting, <laughs> a lot about previous restaurants you've eaten at, because they store all that data, they analyze it. And by the way, that's super helpful. However, it also means they have this huge history of your of everything you know, you've ever thought about, searched for, etc. And when I looked at my history, which I, I went into the Google settings, I found it, and I, I was just shocked at how it went back to 2006. They had 26,000 searches I had done per month stored in there. And it was just so incredibly revealing of every little hop and skip and jump that my mind had made that I really didn't want it out there anymore. So I switched to DuckDuckGo. They don't store anything. Now, the difference is they don't know what restaurant you're looking for, nor do they know what city you're in, so you have to type in more things. But on the other hand, I came to enjoy that because then I really knew I was getting what I wanted because Google knows what I wanted in the past, but today I might want something different. I assume that as a journalist, you're continuing on an ongoing basis to write about these issues, but the NSA Snowden story in particular as that has been unfolding. Yeah, I mean, I when I started looking into this issue in 2009, I thought, this is really interesting. I'll spend a year on this. And now I basically realize I may never write about anything else because this is sort of an, the issue of our time. It's not the only issue of our time, but it is the revelations continue to get bigger and bigger. And, you know, the Snowden revelations have been shocking. As I mentioned to you, when they first came out, they were about things that I had an inkling of and suspected were happening. But I have been shocked at the extent to which the... NSA has been in every piece of things. The fact that they were going and grabbing stuff from the online ad tracking that I had thought, okay, I'm blocking this stuff, but at least it's not going to be life or death. <laughs> it might just like be less ads following me around. No, it turns out the NSA was also in there, right? And so it turns out they're in every piece of this surveillance economy that they can get their hands on. And so it has been incredibly 
shocking to me and makes me even more committed to continuing to report on this topic. Well, you can follow Julia's ongoing coverage of these privacy issues at ProPublica.org. And the story of her own efforts to minimize her security risks is Dragnet Nation. It's just out from Times Books. And you've been listening to her on Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. If you're subscribed to us on iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not, it's very easy to do. And either way, I hope that you might take a moment to rate and review this podcast. It makes it a little bit easier for other folks to find it. And I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Thanks for listening.